0: The reading is 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. This, uh, these two verses really serve us in the same way that a headline does an article in a newspaper. Um, the headline in a newspaper provides for us uh, a brief summary, we hope, of what we find in the smaller print below. And what we find here in this text is is, is Peter urging us to live in a certain way, to live for God's glory by abstaining from sin and doing good. And then what we'll see in the coming weeks is that he takes that very principle, that headline, and he applies it in a whole range of realms. He applies it in the realm of family life. He applies it in the realm of working life. Uh, He applies it in the realm of of, of social life. It's really all about how we act as Christians in the world and how we relate to those we live alongside. Uh, Before we read it, let's bow our heads and let's pray again. Our Father, your word tells us that we are unable to understand the things that are contained in your words without the illumination of your Holy Spirit. Please, would you... Illumine our hearts today to understand what is in this word. Help us to see what we need to change. Help us to see what we need to do that we might truly live for your glory and your glory alone in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's read together 1 Peter 2 verses 11 and 12. Dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong they may see your good deeds and glorify God's on the day he visits us amen this is God's word Well, Peter begins with this reminder again that we are aliens and strangers in this world. He's told us this twice before, but given he's mentioned it again, we should consider it even briefly again. We are those, according to uh, the, the translation of these words, aliens and strangers, are those who are in the world but not of the world. We are those who have a home in the world alongside people in the world, but this world is not our home. I suppose you could look to um, the role of an ambassador uh, as an illustration of this. An ambassador, contrary to what our TV adverts would tell us, is not someone who holds fancy receptions and serves up for Ero Roshi. An ambassador is someone who is sent by a, a sovereign, a ruler, or by a government to another nation, in order to live among the people there and to represent that sending sovereign or nation. So let's say, for example, that the Queen decides to send Mr. Garvey uh, to be an ambassador somewhere. Let's say the Seychelles. <laughs> and let's say that I go there and, and let's say I, I walk around all the time in Bermuda shorts and a Stetson hat. Uh, and party day after day after day, do you think that I would be offering a good reflection of my sending sovereign? Definitely not. Maybe in a few years' time, if Prince Harry ever comes to uh, the throne, we might, uh, might be a little bit different. Uh, that was a joke. <laughs> I'm sorry if I offended anyone with that. But the whole point is, we are to conduct ourselves. Ambassadors are supposed to conduct themselves in those other countries in such a way that reflects the sending sovereign. We should be reflecting the character and the values of the one who sent us. Now, we're not to go there and necessarily um, live however we want to live. No, ambassadors have a role. They live alongside the people of that nation and yet remain distinct, they still belong. Their citizenship belongs somewhere else. And that's true of us, isn't it? This world is not our home. Uh, The old song says we are just passing through. It's very true. We have a home alongside the people of this world. And the mistake that we sometimes make as Christians is that we treat this place as, as a destination rather than a preparation for what is to come. The reminder for Peter at the start of this new section is remember who you are. Remember your identity. We don't belong here. We live here and it's good to live here in good ways, but we belong somewhere else. Our role then as ambassadors or as aliens and strangers as we have in the text is that we are called by God to live in a way that reflects his character. We're called by God to live in a way that honors him. So that when people see us, they see a reflection of him. And I think what Peter is outlining for us in verses 11 and 12, and certainly through to 4.12, that God's people are called by God to be holy as he is holy, And to live in a way that attracts the world to him through the quality of their lives. So the goal in every relationship is to live in such a way that the people around us, unbelievers, will want to know why we're different and so that they might come to know God for themselves. And in short, Peter outlines for us two things. It requires of us two things. One, we abstain from sinful desires. We abstain from indulging the sinful nature. That will be my first point. My second point is from verse 12, that we are also to maintain a faithful Christian witness by doing good. Let's look at point one, to abstain from sinful desires, to abstain from indulging the sinful nature. Look with me at verse 11. Dear friends... I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world, to abstain from sinful desires which wage, which war against your soul. Here Peter is explaining to us that there is an internal hostility that we experience as Christians. An internal warfare. And that's, that's surprising for us in some sense. Let's remember that Peter is writing to Christians who in their present experience were we're facing persecution. But Peter says the biggest battle that they face is not an external battle, but an internal battle. The biggest battle we face is not with the unbelieving world on the outside, but the sinful nature that is in every one of us. It was D.L. Moody who said, I have more trouble with D.L. Moody than any other man I know. How true that is. Now, I think what we need to do, to know, to know, in order to know how we are to abstain from the sinful nature, we need to understand the reality of the sinful nature, the way it works, and what it targets. So the Bible says that each and every one of us is born with a sinful nature. The Bible says, in no uncertain terms, that we are actually slaves to our sinful nature. Slaves in the sense that we can't stop sinning. I suppose you might depict this in some way as as, as wearing manacles of some sort. We are chained to this sinful nature. We are enslaved to it. We do what it calls us to do. But when we come to Christ, the chains of the sinful nature are broken. Through Christ's work on the cross, uh, we are freed from the power of sin in the sense that it no longer rules us. It no longer has that dominion over us. No, we have a new ruler, a new king, we walk in a new obedience. But here's the thing, this sinful nature, the flesh, as it's often called, does not disappear. No, that only happens fully and finally when Christ returns to rid the world of sin. In the meantime, even with those of us who are Christians, the flesh hangs around to tempt us. And at times we experience the serious urge to give in to temptation and to indulge the flesh. To gratify the desires of the sinful nature in disobedience to God. And Peter knows this is a major, major issue. That's why he's telling us using language of warfare to fight our fleshly desires. To not give in to them. Now, maybe he knows his own heart too well, and certainly he knows our problem. The problem is that we often make friends with our flesh, with our sinful nature. We give in to temptation and indulge the things that the flesh lusts after. In a sense, we feed it. And in feeding it, well, it can grow stronger. Well, verse 11 should serve as a wake-up call for us. How can it be wise to make friends with the flesh, the sinful nature that, that, that wages war against our souls? I mean, that's like, I suppose, like Churchill inviting Hitler around for tea. I mean, it's a, it is just an absurd thought, particularly when you think of what the flesh aims at and what its target is. Well, the target is our hearts, and the aim is there for us in the verse our souls, our very person. It it targets our destruction. So here's what Peter is urging us to do then. He's urging us to fight against this by abstaining. Don't feed it. Hold yourself back. That's what the word abstain means. Hold yourself back from feeding this flesh. Starve the flesh by abstaining from these sinful desires. Now, I don't know what you think of when you hear the word abstain. Like I said, it does mean that we are to hold ourselves back from something. It's a word that's routinely associated with with common things like dieting and so on. So the, the, the general gist of it is that we deny ourselves something that we want usually because it's good for us to deny ourselves what we want so abstinence is a very good thing, abstaining from indulging the sinful nature is a very good thing, holding yourself back from giving in to these sinful desires according to Peter is just what Christians do this is how we live in such a way that brings glory to God, this is how we live in a way that is consistent with his holy character now we need to see this In order to understand that indulging the sinful nature harms us, we see that in the warfare language, but it also harms our witness, which is Peter's great concern. What do people see when they look at us? As I've said, they are supposed to see a reflection of God, his goodness, his righteousness, his kindness, his love, his mercy. But when we indulge the sinful nature... All they see is a reflection of themselves. How, how are we at abstaining from sin? Let's face it, the Bible teaches us very clearly, don't sin. Okay? It's not good to sin. Just don't sin. Don't do it. Now, before we go away thinking, well, this is going to get heavy. This is going to be one of these guilt trips that we often go on. Well, it's not uh, because, and this is one of the reasons why I read again from 1 John chapter uh, 2, verses 1 and 2 at the start of our service. Because it reminds us so plainly of what we're called to as Christians. Don't sin. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. Okay? Walk in obedience to the Lord. Don't sin. But here's the reality check. We know we do sin. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Who made atonement for our sins, and not only for ours, but the sins of the whole world? We are to abstain from sin, and remember that when we do fall into sin, we are not to we are not to be paralysed, paralysed by a weight of guilt and shame. No, we are to remember our redeemer. We are to apply the full benefits of the cross to our lives so that we will stand up and stand strong that we will receive that forgiveness as it's freely offered but not with a flippant view of sin with a serious view of sin that we might pray immediately after asking for forgiveness help us not to sin so what does it look like for us to abstain from sin what does it look like for us in the day to day situations And again, often I think that when we think of abstaining from sin and pursuing holiness, we think of making some epic changes. But most often our growth in holiness, I think, accrues in tiny increments in the little things, the avoidance of of the daily evils and the daily foibles, the the setting aside of the, the, the worldliness that comes at us day after day, the little acts of compromise, putting to death all of these little inconsistencies in us. I think it's more like that. What should we abstain from? What about if you're in a situation where where your marriage is in difficulty? You're not communicating well with your husband or with your wife. You're wondering if there's any hope for your future. Well, the sinful nature is present in that situation. To justify your actions and to justify your evil thoughts, yeah, that person has really sinned against you. You're right to feel that way. But perhaps abstinence in that situation means that we do not indulge the sinful nature by agreeing with those evil thoughts, but that we refute them and turn away from them and rather turn towards a godly response of forgiveness. The way we handle those kinds of trials actually has the power to, if you like, draw or repel unbelieving family or friends around us. So it's not just about our own personal lives. Even our individual uh, abstinence can have such a positive effect on those around us. What about in the office? In what ways can we abstain from sin and not indulge the sinful nature when there's a conversation that turns the worst. A conversation about a colleague where basically you can see envy and slander right before your eyes. Well, maybe this to indulge the sinful nature in that respect means to join in the conversation because actually in your sinfulness you think that they are right. But abstinence might mean that you refuse to say that bad word. You You choose to look for the good in other people. Or the right thing to do in that situation might be to turn the conversation around entirely to something else. The way we respond in that kind of situation, the way we handle that scenario has actually the potential through our abstinence to make our unbelieving colleagues engage us in a conversation about our faith the next time it comes up in discussion. Again, it's not just about our own Individual, individual, personal abstinence or sinfulness, what we do, how we act, how we behave, has a wider impact than just our own lives. So Peter calls us, if we are to live as aliens and strangers in this world, in the hope that those who are against us, and the hope that those who are around us might one day come to hear this message for themselves and believe this message for themselves and glorify God as we glorify him, then they must abstain from these things, abstain from indulging the sinful nature which just wages war against your soul. Brothers and sisters, can I encourage you to to pray for one another more, even as you do your daily readings, often what we do in the mornings, if we're reading through a passage of the Bible, it's so easy just to, to, to read through the passage and say, what am I to get out of this today? And how can I pray for myself in this? But actually what we should be doing is remembering that we are part of a wider family. Lord, please let the, our brothers and sisters in this church family grab hold of this, that we're not to sin but not to be weighed down by guilt or shame because we have an advocate. Lord, help us all to grasp that. Pray for one another. Talk to one another. If you find that you're struggling with an issue in particular, we'd be so delighted for you to come and have a chat with us after a service and ask for prayer. After our evening services in the bottom corner, there's always an opportunity to pray with folks now. Please do that. Invite the folks around you to pray for you as we seek to live for God's. So the first thing that we do as aliens and strangers, ambassadors for Christ, is to abstain from indulging the sinful nature. The second thing in verse 12 is that we are to maintain an authentic, faithful Christian witness. We are to exercise our lives in such a way that presents and displays and projects a true portrait of our God and King. And if verse 11 is all about holding yourself back from something, verse 12 is saying, don't hold yourself back from any of this. Do good. Do good. Verse 12 says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So live good lives. That's what Peter's calling us to do, even in the face of opposition and hostility. We saw in verse 11 that there's an inner hostility, the sinful flesh that wages war against our soul. Well, here we see the reality of the external hostility. There are those who are against us. There are those who will say slanderous and horrible things about us. People will lie about us as Christians, even accusing us of doing evil. But Peter wants us to act in such a way that demonstrates to them the inconsistency of their accusation. That's what he wants us to see, that in verse 15 uh, of this chapter, it's God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Or in chapter 3, in verse 1, in relation to unbelieving husbands, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. And even in verse 16 of chapter 3, the aim is that as we keep a clear conscience, that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So, we're to conduct ourselves in such a way that, is, that, that people can look at us and just see the inconsistency of their own accusations. The good life that's presented here by Peter is a life that is beautiful, a life that is honorable, it's a life that's attractive. There's no inconsistency between what a person says and what a person does. And Peter is trying to highlight for us this this amazing truth that how we live gives substance and credibility to our words. What we do and how we live, even in the face of opposition, can serve to authenticate the gospel message that we declare. And authenticity is essential, isn't it? The kind of life that we live should show the world that we really mean what we say. That consistency of our lives makes it much more plausible to onlookers that God is really there and his influence in our lives is real, is powerful, and actually different from anything else in this world. And what Peter is doing here really is passing on the teaching of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And the call for us as Christians then in doing beautiful works, in conducting ourselves in an honorable way, is to approach the world with love, with generosity, with acts of kindness, To provide a powerful confirmation of the thing we declare with our mouths. God is love. God is love. And we pray that even as we'll see as we go through these passages. That when people see our outward actions, they ask about our inner hope. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. How are you at doing good? I think this is a question we must ask ourselves often. Certainly something we should pray about for one another. I don't know about you, but for me, I can find myself even among those that I love the most, I can find in myself a selfish tendency. I can find a desire in me that wants to please the self more than others. A desire to serve my own wants and desires more than I want to serve others. But when we are selfless, when we are humble like Christ when we are patient and joyful and loving, these qualities worked out even in the little things of life really serve to determine whether or not we are a blight or a blessing to the people around us. They really serve to help us see whether or not we will be the kind of people who usher other people into the very presence of God to behold his glory and goodness or we will be like those who repel. I knew a friend of mine who was going out for a date one night, and uh, he was excited about meeting up with this girl. Uh, this was the girl he wanted to marry. Uh, what he did was he rushed, uh, he was rushing out the door, and then realized he hadn't put on any aftershave. And he ran back up the stairs as quickly as he could. He, he didn't even bother turning the bathroom light on, because he was so eager to get going. He had already spent so much time getting himself ready. And so he didn't put the light on. He opened up the cabinet, Scoosh, coosh, 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 and out he went. And during dinner that night, his girlfriend sitting across the table from him, just kept wincing and kind of screwing up her nose and saying, What is that smell? It smells like, it smells like someone's been on Sahara or, or a safari or something like that. There's, it smells like holiday or something like that. Turns out he had gone up and sp- not sprayed on aftershave to attract, but he'd sprayed on jungle formula. <laughs> Repellent. Goodness. What an error to make. Next time, turn the light on. It's a good idea. Turn the light on. So this is the thing. We as Christians are meant to be those who serve like perfume, like aftershave, a a nice fragrance where people go, oh, that's lovely. We're not to be like jungle formula Christians that repel people. What are you doing? How are we living our lives? Are we repellents or are we attracting people to the gospel? by our abstaining from sin, by living holy lives, and by doing good, holy works for Jesus, are we serving to commend Christ or giving people justification for ignoring him? This is Peter's great concern. Even in the face of hostility. It can be all too easy for us to feel like, man, we are under the cosh. In this city, there are between 2 and 5% of this city, are Christians. Bible-believing, gospel-centered, Jesus-worshipping Christians. That's a whole lot of people who don't believe in Jesus. And amongst that huge number, that's overwhelming in its sense, but in amongst that huge number, there are those who are seriously anti-Christian. There are those who are openly hostile towards us. Many of us experience it in our workplace. Peter is saying the wrong thing to do is to retreat into yourself, to think that your Christian life is all about you, and to refrain from acting in ways that are kind and good towards the people around you. He says, no, hold yourself back from sinful desires and indulging it. It matters when it comes to your witness. And don't hold yourself back from doing good. In doing good deeds, you can commend Christ. And indeed, we can only look to Christ, can't we? The one who abstained entirely from every temptation that was before him. So that he might be qualified to walk in perfect obedience and do good deeds, indeed, the greatest good this world has ever seen. In humility, laying down his life on a cross. So that we who deserve death and judgment receive life and salvation loving activity diffuses a world's hostility and Peter wants us to grasp that it bulldozes barriers so many people are just looking for an excuse to reject the gospel we need to make sure that we are the kind of people who don't give them that excuse or justify their excuses so what can we do? How do we do good deeds? Straight after this, uh, the, the section in, in, in Matthew uh, where, where Jesus commends his followers to let their light shine so that people will see their good deeds and glorify God is a section on salt and light. And Peter, uh, Peter well, Jesus would urge us as salt to be distinct and different to act as that preserving agent in this world. We must be in contact with the corrupting carcass of the flesh in order to make a difference. Are we in contact with other people around us who are not Christians in order to actually do good deeds that get noticed? How much time in our week is spent with unbelievers compared to believers or on our own? Brothers and sisters, in a time like this, when so many thousands upon thousands of people in this city are heading towards a lost eternity, we need to abstain from indulging our sinful, selfish desires and live the kind of lives where we are in contact with unbelievers. What Peter is offering us here is a mission strategy, really. The call on God's people is to attract the world to God through the quality of our lives. How sad it is. I see it in myself. That despite the number of unbelievers, I can't see beyond my own sinful desires at times. What can we do? Well, we can eat with people, invite people around for dinner. We can have conversations when we're out with folks. It's not necessarily that we need to add things to our schedule. You could just invite people to join you doing the things that you enjoy doing. So whether it's watching Strictly Come Dancing or X Factor or something on a Saturday night, why don't you invite some of your neighbors around? And just be careful what you say about the bad dancers. This is where the true significance of our lives lies. At the end of the day, the success of our lives hinges on whether or not we direct people to God. because when we do that, we see the potential. There is a potential that people will see our good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. In other words, we will, if, we, if we live lives that are distinctly different and wonderfully winsome Then Lord willing We might just see with our eyes What we really long for in our hearts The people around us whom we love Come into faith in Jesus Christ Loved ones in our life Sitting up, taking note The, the, the implication here clearly is Repenting of sin and believing Christ Because that's how you glorify God Even those who have spoken with derision might have their lives completely turned around. Those who have been hostile towards Christianity might come to see the power of the cross for themselves. There's a great transformation that can take place. Here's what Peter is saying to us in summary. As aliens and strangers in this land, we are to be those who hold ourselves back from indulging the sinful nature. It is God's will that you abstain from sinful indulgence. And at the same time, we are to be those who do not hold ourselves back from doing good. And by doing good deeds, we commend Christ. We maintain a faithful Christian witness. If we don't do these things, remember, we give people good cause to reject Christ. And remember that if we do that, in the end, their cry will only be a cry of torment. Peter finishes by talking about this day of visitation. What's that about? Well, it's about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Jesus returns, the Bible speaks about this return in no uncertain terms. It's a day when God visits us and it's described in two ways. On the one hand, it's a day of judgment and on the other hand, it's a day of salvation. And whether that day is a day of judgment or a day of salvation depends on whether you believe the gospel. So the day of judgment without apology, the Bible reserves words like terrible and dreadful to describe it. Isaiah 13.8, for example, says that on that day of visitation, terror will seize them. In other words, the unbeliever. Pain and anguish will grip them. They will rise like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at each other. Their face is aflame. Now that's about as graphic as it gets. And other passages suggest that for those who are still in their sin at the time of Christ's return, it would be better to die under an avalanche of jagged rocks than to face the wrath of God. His just judgment for sin. But while this day of visitation is a day of judgment for some, for others, as I've said, it's this day of salvation. It's a day of joy and happiness. It's the complete opposite of this. It's a day when sin and suffering disappear. A day when death is destroyed forever and every tear is wiped away from every believing eye. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, can I encourage you to see that what you believe about this gospel And what you believe about your sinfulness matters now. Because if you do not believe the gospel, then that day of visitation and that day will come. We live live in in a city where people assume that tomorrow is going to be another day just like today. But one of these tomorrows, it's going to be very, very, very different. Because Jesus has promised to come. But if you're here today, you're not a Christian. Don't assume that tomorrow will be another day like today. Today is a day of choice. You can move. You can have this change. You don't need to be the kind of person who is heading towards a cry of torment in hell, but it can be a cry of salvation when Christ returns. If we repent of our sins and believe the gospel that Christ died for our sins once for all to bring us to God's then you will, on that day of visitation, cry out in praise of your Redeemer rather than in fear of your judge. And we pray that you would talk to us about these things or go in the Christianity Explored course that we've mentioned. These things matter. Brothers and sisters, we are to be those who commend the gospel. We are to be those whose lives We are to be those called by God to attract the world to him through the quality of our lives. To live in such a way that we abstain from sinful desires and maintain an authentic Christian witness. And in doing so, Lord willing, see what we hope for. Many more souls saved. Many more voices being lifted up, giving glory to God on that day when Christ returns. Let's pray together.